Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and uh, welcome to that uh, time of the week, a special in these holiday moments, where we turn our attention to... Uh, things that may pose big dangers in our life. We call it We're All Gonna Die Radio. Uh, that was the idea of my co-host. I'm David Rothkopf. My co-host is John Wolfstall. Uh, John is joining us from a dog park somewhere in California. You want to explain that, John? Oh, I'm just visiting the, the beautiful area that I don't want anybody else to go to in California, San Luis Obispo. It's paradise here. Um, well, uh, this you is, enjoy and this is why we talk and, about uh, enjoy. This is why we talk about all the things that may kill us, is so we work hard so they won't, so we can enjoy places like this. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and we are joined uh, by two uh, folks who enlightened us earlier in the year. Paul Shari is the executive vice president and director of studies at CNAS. His most recent book is Four Battlegrounds. Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. How are you doing, Paul? Doing great. Glad to be back. Thanks. Very glad to have you. Uh, and we are also joined by Karen Howe, who's an award-winning journalist covering artificial intelligence, currently contributing to The Atlantic. Previously, she was a foreign correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, focused on AI, China tech, and society, and a senior editor at one of my favorite publications, the MIT Technology Review. How are you doing, Karen? Great. Thank you so much for having me back, David. Very glad to have you here. Uh, we want to look at uh, AI, and of course, because this the nature of our show, we'll also look at the intersection between AI-related technological advancements and uh, the their applications to uh, weapons technology, but we're not going to limit ourselves there. And we want to look back at 2023, and we want to look ahead to 2024. Um, of course, 2023 was the year, perhaps this is the bane of Paul's existence and Karen's existence, but it was the year that everybody discovered what AI was. Uh, we're just a few weeks past um uh, the 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 first anniversary of the release of ChatGPT, that changed 
the equation. Uh, I was a little kid at Bell Laboratories in the 1960s when they were developing the first uh, 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 sort of precursors of artificial intelligence. My dad worked there. I wasn't just called into Bell Labs when I was eight year old. Uh, but um, uh, so I've been, <laughs> they turned to me for advice periodically in elementary school. But um, I, I uh, they, uh, they so no longer exist. Obviously, this field's been around. Bell Labs does exist, but it doesn't exist in the form that it did, you know, for until AT&T was broken up, which we like mourned in our family. We literally, you know, we sat Shiva for Bell Labs. Um, uh, you know, it was pure research oriented organization. Uh, now it is just a, a you know, corporate uh, uh, development lab like many others. Anyway, um, uh, so it was a year in which awareness of AI was a big story. And so I'm just going to take that, that, that one development away from you guys and let you focus on uh, other things that you thought were noteworthy in the past year. Karen, you want to start? Well, um, <laughs> well, um, I think to kind of cheat a little bit and add a little bit to the, the development of, um, everyone coming to realize that AI is a thing. Um, the thing I just want to add is I think everyone came to realize what AI is through a very, very specific type of AI, a very specific subset of AI technologies. Um, and so I feel like the public has gotten really transfixed by ChatGPT generative AI and businesses have gotten really transfixed by generative AI. But this is uh, like actually a really tiny slice of the entire AI pie. Um, and I'm hoping that we kind of start to nuance that a little bit as we go into 2024 and people start to realize that there are actually many different types of AI technologies, that generative AI is only one of them and, and has particular features that are useful for some things and not useful for others. But right now we're kind of in this moment where every everyone thinks that generative AI is the solution to everything. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like the biggest trend that's happened this year in my mind. Okay. Paul? Well, it's been, I mean, just an incredible year. Um, as you pointed out, David, ChatGPT kicked off at the end of 2022, this sort of this, this big bang uh, moment in AI, where all of a sudden these AI tools become very accessible to people. Um, and I'm struck when I give talks and, and engage with the public. And I ask people all the time, you know, how, how many people have interacted with chat GPT or similar types of large language models, which as Karen pointed out, is just a small slice of AI, but it is something that people can get their hands on. And it's, it's just an enormous amount of the public has interacted with these. And I think it's made the deep learning revolution real for the public in a way that it just hasn't been over the last decade. And of course, that's a small piece of it, but I think it has, it has woken up the public to this reality that we are building tools that while they don't think like people and they're not really like human intelligence. They're powerful. They could do interesting and valuable things. And then we've seen all of the ripples from that over the last year, continued advancements in the technology like GPT-4, which came out in March of this year, uh, which is really significantly more capable actually than the first version of ChatGPT, which was based on GPT-3.5. Um, but also all of this attention towards AI governance and you know, closing the year with a flurry of activity coming out of governments, the White House executive order, 
the Bletchley Declaration coming out of the UK AI Summit. We had a whole bunch of countries, including the US and China, signing up to a, a you know statement about AI risk and safety. Um, so I think it's it's really been a remarkable year for AI, and uh, we're going to see continued developments in the technology and governance issues in the year ahead. Yeah, and of course, you would add to that the EU uh, uh, AI regulatory regime that was just announced, right? That's right. The new, new EU AI Act, uh, China announced a new global AI initiative. Um, so I think that the flurry of government activity is widespread globally, and that's going to continue to deepen in the year. Yeah, and by the way, on the chat GPT point, before we get to John, um, I, I just want to speak directly to the audience and say, if you're thinking of having chat GPT write your speech on AI to deliver to your people, and you think that's a clever twist, that's over. Everybody's done it. Don't do it again. Okay, John. Well, I, I, I was going to say this is the year that I had Chat GPT write my pod, uh, my um, blog post on uh, nuclear weapons and AI. So thanks for stealing that, David. I, I can't use that anymore. Um, it, I, I think there are a couple of important things. One, it, this is the year that AI offered to um, improve my eyeglasses, which I think, you know, um, and improve my laundry detergent. You know, this was the year that corporations began to understand that they could advertise on AI, that somehow that was a positive feature that the American public wanted. And I think that's a, a big part of how the public will perceive technologies, right? It's We used to advertise that we were going to have, you know, we had atomic toys in the 50s. Um, they didn't actually have radioactive material in them, but, you know, that helps build the mindset. And right now, the mindset is still undecided on whether AI is going to be a positive thing or a negative thing. Uh, some people are doomsayers, other people are very positive. And so I think this is the first time the public's really engaging in that public perception. I think we also just have to be clear that as far as we know, this is the first time that we were using AI uh, in warfare, that we were trying to have uh, drone uh, operations enhanced by artificial intelligence techniques in the battlefield of Ukraine. The Ukrainians have been very uh, innovative in terms of using this technology. But of course, the military has been using large language models and generative AI for quite some time to integrate signals intelligence and processing. And I think that also means this is the year that the lens opened on that a little bit more. The military is usually the cutting edge of technology. But now that you have corporate AI writing things like letters to the government saying, please regulate us so we don't all die, it's increased the energy behind investigation and potentially regulation. Where that ends up, I think we don't really know. Um, but 2024, I think, is going to be a, see a lot more of that. Um, yeah, and of course, we also talked on, on this show not too long ago about uh, the Israelis using AI uh, to help them with targeting in Gaza. Uh, which uh, has produced uh, some rather horrific consequences. Uh, but as a sign, this was the year that we started seeing these things uh, integrated. Uh, and I think you make a great point. It's also kind of the year where, you know, you next expect to see a box of Cheerios saying now with AI, you know, it's, it's every, every, everybody seems to be uh, ad adding um, that into the mix. But as we, as we look ahead to 2024, uh, Karen, we've seen the tip of some regulatory icebergs. Um, uh, 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 do you expect uh, we're going to see more engagement in this issue by governments 
And if so, how? Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the flurry of government activity that we've seen has uh, primarily been in response to, like, like the EU AI Act was primarily in response to things that were happening pre-ChatGPT, pre-generative AI. And then they started um, adding on uh, modifications to kind of address this new era of AI. Um, I think the, similarly, we've seen that with the US as well, where a lot of this um, early documentation has tried to rush to patch previously drafted documents for um, a different different era of technology now. Um, but many of these patches are, are just... Um, they're, they're sort of still tentative in that they're kind of guessing a little bit about how this technology is actually going to become uh, really consequential in society because a lot of the talk of businesses adopting generative AI is still talk, um, which means that a lot of the um, impacts will not yet be visible until later on. Maybe maybe by next year, we'll start seeing more concrete examples of impacts. But until we see those impacts, we're not really going to have much qualitative data, quantitative data to understand how to actually regulate this in a more precise way. Um, and once we get there, governments will certainly be trying to iterate on what they've put out this year um, to refine it further. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. Um, you know, the last time you were on, Paul, I think we talked about the fact that I'm in the midst of writing a book on AI because I live in the, you know, within the Beltway in Washington, and everybody is actually obligated to be doing that at the moment. Um, uh, we, we had a discussion with somebody earlier on where somebody said, you know, if, if you're in a Washington discussion right now and you want to seem smart, you have to bring up AI in the context of the discussion. And of course, you know, my book was going to be called something like Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, but that's what your book is called. Um, so, you know, I'll have to change that, uh, in some, in some way, come up with a different variation, but in doing it, one of the things that strikes me, and this goes back to Karen's earlier point is AI is not one thing. It's many things. It's what I call an everything issue, right? There are two everything issues, China and AI, China touch in, in Washington policy kind of China touches everything. If you're doing trade policy, you're doing labor policy, you're doing, you know, phytosanitary standards, you're doing arms policy, you're doing, you know, uh, uh, transmigration or disease. China's in everything. AI is in everything, too. I mean, I don't think anybody at the beginning of 2023 was in this field thought, well, you know, one of the big developments in AI this year would be that the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild would make <laughs> AI a centerpiece of their labor struggles, right? right. But, but, Yet here, here we are. And, you know, as I look ahead, I see a lot of the most destabilizing components of AI having nothing to do with a singularity, an event which AI decides we don't need humans anymore and eliminates all of us. It has to do with things like eliminating a lot of jobs, particularly in developing countries where the jobs never came in the first place. And this could have a big impact on stability. Uh, you know, those kind of more um, uh, quotidian developments, if you will. Uh, and I'm wondering which of those you look ahead to and think, oh yeah, here, here's the disruption from left field that we ought to be paying attention to. Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting, um, things that the end of this year has teed up for the next one is right at this intersection of China and AI, which is that the U.S. and Chinese governments have agreed to sit down together and talk about AI. 
And that has the potential to have some pretty significant impacts when we think about global AI governance. What are they going to talk about? You know, how in-depth are those discussions going to be? You know, very much an open question. Obviously, the U.S. and Chinese governments have had a hard time uh, just talking to each other about anything, particularly security-related issues. But that's potentially a promising sign. Um, and there is, you know, I think a door starting to open there, or at least you can see the government sort of trying to crack it open towards what could be down the road, maybe further uh, agreements or, or understanding surrounding AI safety, managing some of the more severe disruptions of the technology. And that could be potentially really powerful in the long run in terms of global governance. Yeah, I have no question. So, John, um, you've been doing a lot of work on the intersection of AI and arms control. As you look ahead to the year ahead, what are some of the things you're most uh, interested in watching for uh, in that area? Well, I think Paul put his finger on an important point, which is that um, look, most of the people running our countries in China and Europe and the United States don't understand this technology at all. Um, and most of them are either scared of it or they're being told by their publics, hey, we're worried about this. And so it may actually force some form of international collaboration or at least some discussions on sensitive issues that weren't possible a year or two ago. In that sense, right, the, the mutual fear that the AI uh, singularity will come and kill us all may be a common cause, even though I'm less focused on the, we've talked about this before, I think that's sort of a red herring that AI developers throw out there, like, oh, save us from this while we're taking your jobs or we're re, you know, reformulating the entire economic uh, structure of, of societies. Uh, you'll, you'll sort of play in the corner over there with, uh, with um, Skynet. Um, so I think there is at least some opportunity in the AI discussion between governments. Um, I actually think what is going to be um, the most important development is how uh, the military is going to apply this technology more rapidly than it itself understands because it's available and for fear that the other country is already developing this. I mean, in this sense, you know, David, you're a historian just because you're old like me. It's, it, we should just call it current events. Now it's history. Um, uh, thank you. But, uh, thank you, know, you for that. Well, uh, uh, we were talking before that uh, Karen here, it's like a couple of granddads and Karen. So, you know, we can, um, we're all jealous that you're, you're, you're still winning under 30 awards. I think Paul's winning under 40 awards. I'm in the under 60 crowd. So, you know, we, we all do what we can with what we're given. But, it, you know, the history of the nuclear arms race was fear that the other guy was 50 feet tall. And already you see it. I mean, when Paul first came on, the first question I asked him is, the perception is we're behind China. Are we behind China? And he's like, no, you know, they're, they're better at some things. We're better in most things. We're innovative, but they are catching up. But already, if you think about the military applications, the sense is if we don't do this, we will somehow be vulnerable. And I think you're going to see this in the nuclear field. You're clearly already seeing it in sensors integration. You're going to see it in drone operations. And I think you're going to see it increasingly in things like missile targeting, and intelligence and decision support, we've talked about this before, where this is going to spread not just in the United States and China and Russia, where we have some advantages, but in countries beyond Israel, to North Korea, to South Korea, to Japan, um, in, uh, in Europe, where they're less capable of understanding the implications because they don't have the defense and science base to support it. And it's going to have implications that nobody can imagine at this point. Um. Another of the things we did, couldn't possibly have expected in 2023, so we're going to end the year with you know everybody on the edge of their seat over a big drama in the corporate suite of an AI company. I mean, 
you know, like who who even heard of OpenAI but before the beginning of this year? Uh, but like many fields, it's a field that's dominated by a handful of mega companies. Um, and the question becomes, uh, you know, is that likely to continue? Are we going to see more turmoil in this area? Um, and as you look out there and as you cover these things, uh, Karen, what's, 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 what's your outlook? Do you see this being one of these things where the biggest continue to dominate or whether there are going to be people who are going to come from out of nowhere um, with new applications? I think absolutely the companies that we see dominating right now are going to continue to dominate because of the resource constraints, um, the, just a, the global resource constraints on developing this technology. It takes a lot of computational power, a lot of computer chips to develop these huge um, large language models or multimodal models. And the companies that are dominating now have already locked up a lot of the supply and um, the chip supply chain just is not producing chips fast enough. Like NVIDIA has a huge wait list because TSMC in Taiwan has a huge wait list for um, producing the chips. And um, there's sort of all of these startups that are jostling to try and get their hands on um, NVIDIA chips. Or I recently saw there's now AMD is like really trying to position themselves as an alternative um, to NVIDIA. Um, but you can't get around this constraint unless there is a fundamental change in the um, underlying AI architecture that allows companies to develop extremely powerful models at a much smaller size with less data, with less computational power. Um, you won't be able to get around this issue. And the thing with OpenAI in particular, I think, is you are going to continue to see turmoil at that company. Um, this 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 massive corporate governance kind of fallout at the end of the year that we saw, it's actually the third time that this has happened at OpenAI, but um, people don't really know this because no one really knew about OpenAI beforehand. Um, I have been covering OpenAI since um, 2018, um, and, you know, they've had the, their first major rift was um, Elon Musk and Sam Altman, the two co-founders, Elon Musk leaving the company. Their second major rift was OpenAI Anthropic splitting um, with Dario Mode, the CEO of Anthropic, one of the biggest competitors to OpenAI, leaving and bringing a huge team um, away from OpenAI to start this other venture. Um, and, and in each of these rifts, it has been an ideological one. There has been uh, a fundamental disagreement between two different camps about what the future of this technology should be. Um, one based more in like a techno optimist approach and one based more in an extreme fear of existential risk approach. Um, and that's not going to change. There's that, that can, these two factions um, exist pervasively in Silicon Valley. And no matter how many times you change out the staff at OpenAI, you're just going to inherit these two camps within your staff. There's going to be collisions of heads, um, and as Sam actually said at one point during an event after the corporate governance fallout, he said, people get more stressed as this technology, as the stakes become higher. And that's part of the reason why we saw this. That stress and those stakes are going to keep getting higher. So I'm, I'm for sure certain that we're going to see more of this. Yeah, I lived through, you know, the techno optimism phase of the Internet and the Clinton administration. and. Um, you know, then watched the robber barons emerge 
uh, as they tend to do in most big industries. So I have to say, I'm not an optimist about techno optimists. Um, David, um, you and, know, and it turns out most of these guys are the same guys. Yeah, they are the First same all, guys. guys. And, it, and a lot of them are the same guys. Yeah, and they're also the same guys as, say, the robber barons of the early 20th century. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a, we need, if, if you're relying on the goodwill and farce f- vision of Silicon Valley to protect the world <laughs> from the power of this technology, um, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, uh, Paul, you know, one of the elements of, um, uh, of power in the age of AI um, is the geopolitical context, you know, who gets these chips and who gets the advantages and who understands the technologies and who has the brain power and who has the capital, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think there's a prevailing view um, that the United States has a, has a, an advantage in this area uh, and that that advantage is not likely to disappear anytime soon because of the requirements of, of, of making the chips that are required in AI and, 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 and so forth. Um, the U.S. is trying to keep China from catching up with a variety of policies um, that I, 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 you know, I think are misguided and not actually going to work, but they're trying to keep China out. Uh, and there are a bunch of other countries, smaller countries that are saying, we got the money. We can buy the chips. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna play in this world in a different way. How do you think it 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 shifts the the geopolitical league tables in the in the medium near to medium term? Well, I think the underlying trend here that's driving this that makes chips such a powerful resource is one that Karen just mentioned. I just want to highlight, which is that these the most capable AI systems, particularly these dual-use foundation models that have sort of general purpose, more general purpose kinds of abilities, are just very computationally intensive, requiring at the moment tens of thousands of the most advanced chips running for weeks, months at a time to train these very advanced models. And so the um, computing requirements that are needed to get there are very, very high. And that means without access to these chips, you're sort of forced um, whether you, you know, you're a smaller company or you're a country that doesn't have access to these chips, you're forced to use smaller models that are open source or as a company, perhaps to build your applications on top of someone else, which is certainly a risky, uh, you know, from a corporate strategy. And um, I think we've seen over the last year, these chips are going to continue to be a source of geopolitical tension between the U.S. and China. Uh, this fall, the U.S. doubled down on its export controls on chips, expanding them responding to some some shifts from industry and how they'd adapted their chips. I don't think that's going away. The real wild card here is Taiwan, which, uh, as Karen mentioned, is at the moment the sole manufacturer, TSMC in Taiwan, of these most capable chips. Um, and that, you know, adds sort of this, this huge just geopolitical wild card because of, uh, you know, China's stated desire to... Uh, absorb Taiwan by force if necessary, and all of the concerns in Washington about uh, military aggression from uh, the Chinese Communist Party against Taiwan and the ways that this could disrupt semiconductor supply chains or, or other concerns that could have big implications in the field of artificial intelligence. Now, there's work on diversifying those supply chains, 
China, of course, is working on trying to catch up. Um, I think it's really unclear in the short term how how much China is going to be able to catch up in terms of chips. Now, we saw a breakthrough earlier this year with the new 7 nanometer chip on Huawei. Um, but there's, I think, some very, very big unknown questions about China's ability to scale that in a way that's cost effective. Um, and so I think we'll see. But in the long run, you know, this is an area where uh, if China is able to build a completely independent supply chain for chips, that could really change the dynamic in terms of geopolitical power and who has access to AI, who's able to control it. John, you know, when you were starting out a long time ago, we mentioned your age and, and clearly it was a long time ago. You know, nerds who went into uh, the, the the policy world had to learn about nukes, and and you know that was kind of the key to entry into the security community. Um, uh, that's over, clearly. Um, we've still got you around, and that we're grateful for that. But um, but um, it, it 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 seems more likely to me that going forward, if you're you know a nerd that wants to go into the security community, you're really going to have to master AI in its many manifestations that are relevant um, here, uh, to go to Karen's earlier point. Uh, so my question to you is, is that true? And how do you think that's going to change the security community? Uh, it's a great question, David. And yes, um, I'm looking at Karen and Paul very jealous because I used to joke that I have job security because with 12,000 nuclear weapons in the world, if I started taking them apart, you know, one a day, I, I've still got plenty of years left, but they're in the growth field, right? I mean, if, when I go and talk to uh, student groups, just like they do, like they want to know more, how do we get into this? The salaries that are being offered at places like OpenAI with any sort of technical capability are astronomical. Like you just, somehow a PhD at MIT uh, is not as competitive as say a, you know, $500,000 a year job programming at OpenAI or, or DeepMind. So, um, yeah, I think it is changing the landscape. Of course, the challenge is that you have both dangers running simultaneously. We still need people that understand nuclear, um, even though that technology is 75 years old. Um, but I think the real challenge here on AI is that it is so diverse. Karen started with this. Um, there isn't one AI. Everybody thinks that large language models are AI and are somehow artificial intelligence, right? I remember when, you know, when I cut my teeth on science fiction in the 70s, artificial intelligence meant human-created sentience. That's a whole nother thing that's coming down the line in neural networks, and are we actually going to be able to create independent, um, viable, um, new um, consciousness, right? I mean, I don't expect that in 2024, but that's what a lot of people in the AI world are working to build and imagine the implications of that. And so for the people coming into the field, whether they're programmers, they're working on uh, the hardware integration, or they're working on the data mining, or they're working on the even more advanced step of building neural networks and how they actually operate, you build and model them. Um, I think that there's still not a very good uh, architecture for even understanding the future of AI. That's where I think a lot of people are. We are like the proverbial, 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 yeah, proverbial, uh, blindfolded people feeling the elephant. Uh, and we've only got a couple of hands. And we don't know what the rest of the parts look like. Yeah, no, no question about that. No question about your comment about the salaries. It, 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 it leads me to, you know, give out some more advice because that's what I do here because I'm the old one. You know, uh, we need journalists who are covering AI and understand it and help us to understand it. But 
Karen, get out as soon as you can. You got to go to one of these companies. <laughs> Say you'll be the head of communications. <laughs> you know, the yeah, real her future soul, her soul for seems AI very nice. journalists. Why do you want her to sell it so rapidly? <laughs> Well, because she could get a lot of money for it. You know, I mean, you know, a soul carries a high price these days. Um, what are what are you looking ahead for in 2024? What are the stories that you think we ought to, we ought to um, keep an eye out for, Karen? I think the, um, one of the dynamics that I'm looking out for is the way that um, talent is going to flow next year, because it, we talked already about computer chips being like a huge limiting factor in, in who actually is competitive. Um, but the people element is also like the, who, the AI talent um, is also in limited supply globally. And um, as John just mentioned, we also need, we don't just need AI talent within the companies. We also need it within the government and within other functions to um, make sure that people are um, actually making informed policies Um and this is, I think, like a, a really big challenge that is sort of one of the catchphrases this year was regulatory capture, right? This fear that um, a lot of these companies are starting to sway the different governments um, too much in their direction. And part of this is because of the talent issue. There isn't enough uh, talent to go around to have people that are independent of companies in academia or in government that have their own expertise that don't have to rely on a company funded um, AI expert to tell them what's happening and what's going on. Um, and I think this kind of dynamic is going to continue playing out next year where governments are now of course, potentially more wary about OpenAI because this corporate struggle. Um, they're also just more wary generally because of um, sort of a lot of the criticisms from the public about this idea of regulatory capture. Um, but but how are they actually going to get around this problem? How are they going to bring, like the US AI executive order has demanded essentially um, a whole of government approach where they're trying to hire talent across the board, across all of the agencies um, and where are they going to find these people when they have to compete against OpenAI paying 500000 Actually, the median salary is like 800000 or a million dollars um, for these people. Um, so that, I think, is going to be one of one of the biggest um, underlying stories. Yeah, I'm going to kill myself. My parents right are weeping. They're like, oh, but, we'd only um, stuck with computer science. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, think about school. all these parents who are like you – they're like people, you know, whole groups of parents out there going, you want to be a doctor? That's a terrible idea. You know, you've got to get into it. I remember the late 70s tra starting to learn Fortran as a programming language and going like, oh, that's boring. I went into policy. That was the biggest mistake I ever made. Yeah. No, I remember I've learned all that stuff too. C++. Anyway. Um, uh, Paul, um, you know, earlier in your career here, as you were a pioneer in this area, um, uh, you know, you would say, oh, look, there's a conference in Washington on AI. I better go, go to that. Cause you know, there aren't that many. And now it's like, gee, I'd like to find a conference in Washington. That's not about AI. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's all, all, all anybody is talking about. Um, uh, so I know that's going to be a challenge in the year ahead. What do you think are going to be the big challenges with AI for policymakers in the year ahead? 
Well, I think the big question is going to be what, if anything, we see Congress do on AI. Uh, with the executive order that came out earlier this fall, the um, executive branch clearly took the ball you know, pretty far. They covered a lot of ground in the executive order. Uh, there's a lot of taskings out to different agencies that are now working on developing guidance that's going to come out over the next three to six months. But there's only so much that the executive can do on their own where we're going to have to see some kind of legislation. So do we see the U.S. answer the EU AI Act with its own U.S. unique kind of perspective on AI regulation? So far, the last 15 years or so, you know, we've seen this really laissez-faire approach from the U.S. government to tech regulation. Um, I think a lot of people can look back on sort of the social media era and say, well, you know, maybe that maybe it didn't turn out so great, but we missed the boat a little bit in terms of getting out in front and ensuring that the technology moved in a way that's socially beneficial. And uh, while there's, you know, I think a lot of concerns, a lot of valid skepticism of a lot of these big tech companies and some of their proposals and, you know, what's what's in it for them. I think we've also seen that, you know, just completely unregulated tech industry is not good for society either. Uh, but Congress is not super functional at the moment. We're going into an election year. Um, you know, I think it'd be it'd be a big lift to see actual legislation in the next year. But can we start to see Congress move the ball forward? We start to see some concrete proposals being developed that might set things up uh, for 2025. That could be a potentially really encouraging development. Right now, there's a tremendous amount of energy on Capitol Hill. There's a lot of hearings, briefings, and meetings, but it's it's you know fairly unfocused in the sense that just trying to even figure out what are the potential proposals that should be on the table, what are the pros and cons of them. Uh, there's ideas floating around, um, but it's still pretty you know pretty much an open field. So I think you know I'd like to see a world where we see a little bit more clarity over the next year and some concrete proposals developed uh, that maybe we can start seeing move forward into legislation. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you say that, I think back on the the flurry of proposals earlier this year to uh, regulate TikTok. Uh, and then there was a response from, you know, all Americans under the age of 35, which was, I'd rather have TikTok than Congress. You know, you know keep your hands off of my TikTok. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think this is going to be another challenge in this area, uh, you know, in terms of people becoming so these technologies becoming so enmeshed in people's lives. John, just as we get to a last question here, uh, and then you can go off to the beach, although it seems rather cloudy there in San Luis Obispo. Um, uh, uh, you know, when we look at potential manifestations of threats in the year ahead, Clearly, one of them strikes me um, to look for is disinformation. Uh, as we get into an election year, there are actually 70-odd elections going on around the world. Uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to apply AI to disinformation uh, in the course of the year ahead. Do you agree with that? And are there other areas where you're worried uh, these these things may become um, uh newsmakers in 2024. Well, David, you, you hired me because I'm a consummate worrier, right? I'm like the old commercial Sam the worrier with blood pressure problems. It's um, not only should we be worried about disinformation and elections, we're already experiencing it, right? I mean, we've been living this for quite some time. Um, <clears throat> and my other night job is I'm on the board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and we warned about deep fakes um, video deepfakes uh, back in, I think, 2018, 
um, when we began to see some of the video capabilities um, uh, catch up with um, things that could trick the human eye. Um, and I think we have already seen even true things or people, you know, misunderstandings can spread widely. If you look at the allegations that Israel had bombed the hospital in Gaza turned out to be a Hamas rocket, that travels faster than things uh, can counter it. And then when you have humans applying disinformation in AI, that's a problem. Then you, when you have AI out there generating its own disinformation, there's no way to catch up. And that's, I think, what we're going to see in the 2024 election is you're going to see these large language models applied to audio and video generating content that nobody can tell the difference about. And um, just like we've seen in social media, there's no way to force the social media outlets, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, to label or catch up because they themselves have no incentive to do that. Unless the government steps in, that's going to spread like wildfire. So I worry a lot about that, even though, let's face it, uh, AI can't keep up with how outrageous Donald Trump is going to be in the election. If you if you programmed a large language model to out-Trump Trump, it would you know fry itself. So um, I, I think the other thing that we are going to see increasingly um, is other countries using this um, to just flood the zone. Um, that it doesn't have to be a specific outcome. It just has to be the chaos. It has to be the lack of trust in institutions. It has to be the lack of trust in leaders. You can't believe anything you see or hear. And that will allow the information bubble, of which we recognize we're a part, right? People self-select this podcast as opposed to, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, great bakers of the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, that's our main competitor, David, as you know. Um, you know, that, that it, if there is nobody to trust, you just trust what's in front of you. And so nobody knows how to process that problem. Uh, nobody knows how to counter it. Um, and even if we could figure it out, the next problem is going to manifest itself more quickly than the, the previous solution can be put into place. So uh, I worry a lot about it, as should we all. Uh, yeah, I'm busy taking notes here saying we need to introduce AI-generated brownie recipes. I think that's a really good application uh, for this. John, how long are we uh, from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists producing an AI doomsday clock? Um, we, we actually just got together in November to set the clock, and this was a big topic of discussion, as you can imagine. Um, but it actually, uh, one of the nice things about getting older, David, as you know, is that you have a little bit more perspective. And, you know, some of the people in the room were around when the craze in the 1950s and AI um, was the first big push. Um, and so, you know, this has happened before. You know, the, the, the phrase that keeps popping into my head is, you know, uh, buy the rumor, sell the fact. We don't really know where we're going to be on AI and large language models uh, and machine learning next year. It's not going to be a straight vertical line. We know that it's going to have troughs and and um, and peaks. Um, the real question in my mind also is, where are the real advantages for AI going to be seen, right? We have to recognize that this is a, uh, a, a, a lot. There's no black and white. It's all gray. Um, and there are going to be a tremendous amount of benefits that come from applying this technology in all kinds of fields. Education, healthcare is the one um, that uh, you know comes to mind most. Once you start seeing people's lives saved through the application of genetic uh, monitoring or the development of new vaccines, um, then you're going to have, I think, a much uh, even more complex landscape to navigate. Um, because the doom, um, uh, you know, what, Karen, what were the the two mentalities, you know, sort of the, the doom and gloom group and the uh, techno optimists, um, the techno optimists are going to have a lot more uh, content besides money 
to back up their arguments. Um, and that's going to make it a much more complicated landscape to navigate. Yeah, I'm really disappointed that you focused on how AI can help with healthcare instead of, as I expected, how AI will make bioweapons more dangerous. Um, but there will be plenty of time to discuss that um, being, in future Being in paradise, uh, David, you know, it, it, made, it made me a techno-optimist, just being in a nice place with good food. Yeah. Well, that, well, I hope you enjoy that through the holidays, and I hope, uh, Karen and Paul, you also enjoy the holidays. Uh, and I hope we can reconvene this group regularly. We're actually going to set up a series of virtual roundtables with experts and talk about AI and its multiple manifestations over the course of 2024. Um, uh, because, you know, I do, as I said at the outset, see it as an everything issue uh, that changes everything. And each one of those discussions is going to be uh, unique and, and, and distinct. And we're going to have to follow them closely. Um, because I'm also somebody who, like each of you, sees this as an absolute, not, not just one game changer, but multiple game changers, and maybe something that's got civilizational consequences, uh, both for better or for worse. But I will say this, uh, as, as I wrap this up, that as we look ahead to 2024, I still see 2024 as a year in which we have to worry more about low intelligence than artificial intelligence. Uh, and uh, that will manifest itself in a variety of ways, not the least of which is the election campaign ahead here in the U.S. Uh, we'll track all of that. This is our last fresh new podcast of 2024. We will then go into next week with archival podcasts, the best of the shows we've got, uh, and then resume on January 2nd with an even bigger uh, roster. Uh uh, we hope that you will have great, healthy, happy, prosperous holidays and a great, healthy, happy and prosperous new year. And we look forward to joining you again uh, in a week. For now, uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Karen. Um, and uh, thank you as ever, John. Bye bye.